0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Japanese Studies channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Traphagan, your host for this podcast, and a professor of anthropology in the Department of Religious Studies and the Program in Human Dimensions of Organizations at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, I am delighted to welcome Professor Suzanne Klein to talk about her recent book, Urban Migrants in Rural Japan, which was published by the State University of New York Press in 2021. Professor Clean, thank you for joining me on the Japanese Studies channel.
1: Oh, thank you, John, for the great opportunity. I'm very excited.
0: Great. Um, and I, I should tell our listeners that uh, Suzanne and I have known each other for quite a long time, so uh, we will go on a first name basis here, I think, which is good. Um, We should begin with a little bit of background. Uh, Suzanne is a cultural anthropologist and associate professor in modern Japanese studies at Hokkaido University in Sapporo, Japan. Uh, She's published widely on rural Japan, many articles, all kinds of different things. And she's investigated a variety of practices ranging from the transmission of traditions through local festivals to rural revitalization programs and tourism to alternate lifestyles in rural areas. Her work is comprehensive And she's made significant contributions to the study of rural Japan. Her work is widely cited and is some of the most important contemporary work going on related to rural Japan. So I'd like to begin. uh, Well, you know, for one thing, I know that you're originally from Vienna. So how does someone from Vienna get interested in studying life in rural Japan? And what motivated you to write this book? (laughs)
1: Thank you. Um, Great. Um, Yes, um, I'm Austrian uh, originally, but I also have Japanese heritage. Uh, My mother's Japanese and um, I spent a lot of my summer holidays uh, in Japan from age two. So um, Japan has always been kind of second home to me, Um, mostly the Kanto area, but... um, Also actually looking at my family roots, uh, they're originally from Yamagata, so um, they also actually left Yamagata uh, for a better life in the Kanto area. So um, I guess looking at my family roots, there's also this kind of dilemma between um, urban and rural linkages in a way in my Mm. family history, which may have shaped my uh, research interests in retrospect. So um, I guess, yeah, um, my my connection with Japan uh, is maybe a little bit different from uh, conventional um, researchers, Mm -hmm. Um, but it means, I guess, that I've always, Japan has always been a part of my life um, Mm -hmm. at a personal level, uh, but also at other levels. So um, this may be a reason why I approach Japan in a kind of translocal way as well, transnational Mm -hmm. way.
0: So, the, the book, you know, dealing with urban um, migrants, and, and of course, there's been, you know, a fair amount of interest in people moving around inside Japan. And, and you know, what, why did you decide to pursue this as an area of study?
1: Yeah, I guess um, it, it kind of emerged from previous research. I was doing research mm-hmm. um, into um, contemporary art festivals like uh, the Echigutsumari um, Art Triennale in Yigata, and this was a kind of starting point for me to get in touch with uh, locals in, in an agricultural area uh, and see their perceptions and reactions to um, the art crowd, if you like, mm-hmm. uh, and also the tensions that emerged uh, from this from people coming from very different worlds coming together and being involved in, in collaborative activities. So that was fascinating to me, and I really wanted to get more into that. And um, then when I was working in uh, Okinoshima Island in Shimane prefecture, uh, trying to examine uh, local festivities, um, like bullfighting and and such practices, Mm -hmm. um, I I ran into the occasional um, uh, lifestyle migrant who had uh, relocated from, from Tokyo or other urban areas And, uh, yeah, it was just, it seemed a very uh, interesting thing to do and to research. So one thing kind of led to another in a way, I guess.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's often how it goes with ethnographic research. You, you, so many questions come up in the field and then you just, there are new projects that just sort of emerge from the one you happen to be on. And, um, I was interested in the introduction, you know, you're, you're talking about your, the main argument of the book and um, you make what I think is one of the key points of the book. You talk about the representation of the rural in contemporary Japan as having become quite fuzzy. Um, and, you know, it's no longer that the rural is just rice paddies and traditional values, as if it ever really was entirely that. Um, but could you, you know, talk about this fuzziness, talk about what has happened um, and what the sort of nature and meaning of rurality is in, in contemporary Japan?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, great question. Thank you. Uh, and also remember that when you uh, gave a talk at Hokkaido University uh, a few years ago, uh, you started with a great, uh, very thought provoking pictures of what the countryside actually is supposed mm. to look like. And I think we all have very different understandings of what countryside is. Um, just coming to Hokkaido, I realized uh, when I was discussing this with a colleague that um, the understanding of countryside I have and and he has is totally different. So wow. uh, I think the kind of subjectivity of of interpretation uh, is something that <laughs> should be kept in mind. And, mm-hmm. and, and this really kind of leads us to the question of of the construction of the countryside. I think uh, there may be a huge gap between uh, representation in media, uh, like this kind of othering of the countryside, as uh, the rural ideal where people can get some uh, yashi and uh, start a new life. And actually the the real experiences of people uh, who have moved to uh, rural areas and find it quite uh, exhausting (laughs) on the one hand, but of course, also um, very uh, refreshing on the other. So the kind of idea of the uh, the, the slow life uh, is is really no nowhere to be found. Uh, right. I think <laughs> most people are extremely busy, uh, have to get up quite early in the morning, um, have to to ha- to do several jobs uh, because uh, there's not so much choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. Yeah, I think the, the kind of uh, real life, the real practices are quite different from uh, the kind of uh, representations in, in, in lifestyle magazines and such.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the I th- it is very interesting to think about the way we uh, imagine the rural. And, of course, the rural is imagined in particular ways in Japan. And actually, you you, know, you mentioned my coming up there to give a talk, and I still remember flying in. And looking out over Hokkaido and thinking that doesn't look like Japan. It looks like the American Midwest. Uh, It's instead of small patches of rice paddies, it's these expansive farms. And a lot of cases they're not growing rice, they're growing other things. And it it struck me how different the rural is, even as a physical space in Hokkaido, as opposed to Honshu right next door.
1: Yeah, Uh, totally. Um, So last time when I... uh Started my follow-up fieldwork in, in May and June in Toshima. Uh, the kind of understanding experience of space uh, really struck me because uh, having lived in Hokkaido for, uh, for some eight years now, uh, I think this really has also shaped my, my sense of space. Um, living in, in a space that is kind of uh, isolated, well-isolated in the winter uh, and uh, there's no insects crawling around, that kind of stuff made me really uh, kind of get get a sense of insecurity when I was living, doing field work in in Tokushima. I was first worried very much about coronavirus and such, but it turns Mm -hmm. out that um, the the real day-to-day issues were really like how to uh, cope and survive centipedes crawling on the tatami mats (laughs) and the like. So (laughs) it turned out very different from what I had Mm -hmm. actually expected, and that was also quite um, interesting.
0: Yeah, that that's a a, a wonderful uh, element of field work is that somehow whenever you go into the field, things just do not turn out like you thought they were going to turn out, and which is good. That means we're learning things. You know that that's that's the what's supposed to happen. But uh, it always intrigues me how surprised I am if I go to the field. And, um, <laughs> so, so you discuss something interesting. You discuss the the precarious nature of the neoliberal project. Um, and the you know way this affects some people who leave r- urban areas for the rural and you also do something interesting you situ- situate your work clearly in the aftermath of the triple disaster of 311 and i think this is very important because you know i mean both of us do our field work in the same general part of japan and and the effects of 311 on people were profound they were you know not just in terms of material Loss and that sort of thing, but psychologically, it really affected what people were thinking about. What am I doing here? And I've I've heard you know many people in the Toku region talk about you know, three eleven forcing them to reconsider their values and their interests, what they want to do in the future. So I was wondering if you could talk about this in relation to the you know urbanites who decide to move out to rural areas that you spoke with. And, um, how do you think you know three eleven might have played a role in this, and also in they're questioning the neoliberal project in Japan.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yes, uh, definitely. Uh, 3.11 was a huge um, kind of paradigm shift for people. Um, a lot of people were kind of waking up from, from their routines and, and, and thinking that now is the time to kind of change something. Uh, and I think the Lehman shock was also uh, another kind of mm-hmm. turning point and I think we have we've had we've seen another third turning point with the corona uh, crisis mm-hmm. now uh, looking at the numbers also um, there's more and more people actually leaving Tokyo moving to other areas rural areas uh, but also keeping their jobs at the same time in Tokyo mm-hmm. so uh, I think the corona um, the, the corona crisis really also has um, Reinforced a lot of, of uh, the things that were already starting before uh, this kind of reassessment of, of place of work, uh, reassessment of working style, and also reassessment of values altogether. Mm-hmm. Materialism, uh, kind of nuclear families, um, all these kinds of standard uh, life trajectories, if you like, um, have been uh, re examined and re questioned. And a lot of people have been using. These kinds of turning points to um, to, to really uh, change uh, their place of, of living and also place uh, change the, the entire setup, I guess, if you if you can say so. <laughs> so I think real change is happening right now um, because for the first time, looking at the um, statistics uh, published by a Japanese Internal Ministry, um, it's obvious that more people are actually leaving Tokyo than coming in so this is a, a big thing uh, in terms That's of it's a big
0: change yes yeah yeah and I, I think also um, the, the fact that you've got the rural depopulation going on so you have a lot of open space and, and empty buildings you know the the it's I think it's difficult to convey the number of empty abodes there are in Japan right now. Um, but in, in rural areas, I mean, there are just, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of, of buildings that can be purchased very cheaply. And that's an attraction, too, I would imagine. You know, people are, are having this moment where they're thinking about, what am I doing? And one thing they can do is move out to the countryside and and get a house cheaply and and live pretty cheaply, too.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, the living yeah. costs are one thing. And also, I think there's more and more opportunities available like financial incentives uh, programs mm-hmm. that offer people kind of uh, first steps to to um, to to relocate plus i think there's a general uh, understanding of of um, local moves uh, as being not weird <laughs> as mm-hmm. compared to maybe 10 years ago so even on the asadora asadora i was watching uh, asadora like yesterday uh, they were they were talking about people uh, in the countryside who um, who came back from uh, from Tokyo after mm-hmm. um, kind of living there for a while. so this is really becoming a standard pattern if you like and uh, some of the uh, older migrants have actually uh, also made some derogatory re- remarks about. People recently moving in being kind of more mainstream and, and not uh, really having a vision, but just following the kind of herd in a way. So mm-hmm. I think there's also new generations of migrants coming up now, lifestyle migrants.
0: Yeah, that's actually very interesting too. And then, you, you know, having these older migrants or maybe return migrants who, you know, move back after spending years in the city looking down upon the new ones coming in, that's kind of an interesting phenomenon. It's a, a lot of things to think about. You know, there, there's so much going on in terms of kind of the reconstruction of identity that's happening along with this as people are thinking about who am I and, you know, what am I doing? And, um, and they're interacting with people who've already moved and of course the people who are already there as well. And um, so you discuss, you know, one of the things you discuss is there's a kind of growing convergence of work and leisure activities for some of the migrants um, that you worked with. And, you know, Japan, of course, is a society that has always had the image of putting a big emphasis on work over leisure. People work very long hours and don't have much leisure time. Um, And I'm curious if you think attitudes towards work-life balance, um, you know, how are they constructed among some of the people that you've worked with? And um, do you think the people you talked with are, are at, a, at the cutting edge of what might be a major shift in Japanese society um, when it comes to values related to work and life balance or something else going on. I'm, I'm curious what you think about that.
1: <laughs> that's a tough one. <laughs>
0: yeah, I know. That's a tough question. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I would. I'm. I'm very much tempted to, to, to go along with uh, Bill Kelly, who's saying that <laughs> it's actually not our task to uh, to make any prognosis, right. <laughs> uh, because there's so many elements we can't really foresee. Um, but generally, I, I um, just remembering uh, all the people I talked to, and also um, actually um, kind of uh, drawing on the people I talked to in uh, my recent fieldwork, work. Uh, I think everyone is working a lot. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's especially uh, so there's also gender gendered uh, divide, I guess, uh, with uh, especially males uh, very much identifying themselves um, through work and successful work, and successful work usually being understood as uh, kind of uh, involving some sort of self sacrifice. <laughs> so mm-hmm. there's yep. a kind of understanding that long working hours are vir- a virtue in a way. And I think in that sense, uh, not so much has changed since uh, the Shoah period, even for people who are quite young. Uh, On the other hand, uh, people I've talked to uh, recently uh, who have moved overseas um, are are much more uh, radical in in reshaping uh, their lifestyles, their work styles. Uh, I was talking to a a person working in IT, Mm -hmm. and he was saying he's only working three hours a day. Uh, that's wow. uh, that's his perfect understanding of work-life balance. The rest, he wants to uh, support his family, uh, cook, uh, do some mm-hmm. domestic uh, work, help his wife. So I think uh, maybe uh, the kind of radical uh, re- reshapers of work and life balance uh, are more found in in, in uh, the kind of diaspora, <laughs> if you like, rather mm-hmm. than uh, in the domestic migration. So. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that there have been too many people um, from my own experience uh, within Japan who um, have managed to, to carve out radically new work styles. Um, it, it was more yeah. about the vision, trying to make the vision happen and trying mm-hmm. to kind of sacrifice your well-being on the way to that. Um, and kind of something I also wrote about in the book, this kind of idea that some day Uh, people will uh, achieve what they have in, in in their minds, but until then they have to do, they have to persevere and, and and, uh, work long hours.
0: Yeah. That's, uh, that's certainly been my experience, you know, working with um, small business startups in rural Japan and the, the length of the, the hours they put in every day are just incredible. I mean, you know, Getting up at two o'clock in the morning after having gone to bed at 11 o'clock at night on a daily basis because, you know, it's their business. And so they have to keep they have to keep the work going and and um, and there's a lot of work to do. And so, yeah, that's been, been my experience, too. I find it quite interesting because I, I have had people tell me, well, I moved to rural Japan because I wanted the slow pace of life. And nothing they're doing suggests they have anything like a slow pace of life. Um, they just work and work and work all the time. So, um, so you know, if you, I, I one of the things that I think really intrigues me about this, the question of of migrants moving around in Japan is is kind of the issue of newcomers. I, you know, um, the the village I worked in, in the, back in the nineties, I still remember very well um, that there were the people that had been there for a long time, and there were the newcomers who had arrived about 150 years ago, and they were still perceived as newcomers. And um, as I, I read your book, I was thinking, you know, back to Jennifer Robertson's very good book, Natives and Newcomers, where she talks about this kind of question and and the difficulties that newcomers have in adjusting to and being accepted in these communities when they move to another part of Japan. Um, and so uh, I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the experiences that the migrants newcomers had in Ishinomaki and, you know, the places that you've been doing your work, Um, maybe you have some anecdotes or two that might help the audience understand what the relationship is between natives and newcomers, insiders and outsiders in Japan.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, Wonderful (laughs) questions and issues. Uh, I I guess um, it depends a lot on on which uh, places and regions uh, you're Mm -hmm. talking about um, and also the history of these places. Um, So, uh, for example, Tokushima Prefecture, Kamiyama Town, uh, has been part of of the pilgrimage uh, path. So uh, they've had a long history of um, coming and going. Uh, Often people who are not necessarily committed to the place uh, long term, but they're just one passing through. So uh, I think locals are quite friendly in, in, in accepting visitors and settlers. While in other places, uh, which may be more mountainous, secluded, uh, people may be quite uh, kind of may take more time to accept newcomers. So I think um, the geographical uh, location also plays a huge uh, role in how locals deal with uh, with new settlers. Um, another thing uh, may also be uh, the origin of settlers themselves, uh, something that. People may not be aware, or so much. Um, actually, one one newcomer was sharing this with me recently, saying that she arrived uh, at, at the same time with another uh, settler. Uh, they're both kind of similar age, uh, both uh, women, uh, and uh, she uh, she herself is from Tokyo, and the other person is from uh, Kyushu, uh, and and mm-hmm. the whole th- and this is happening in Tokushima. And, and they were both kind of trying to, to get uh, to know locals and, and engage as much as they can, uh, both being very social and, and also being good friends. And uh, she, at some point, she really uh, was wondering why uh, her friend from, from Kyushu was uh, having so, seem, seeming so much more successful with, with the uh, local old person, uh, old guys. And, mm-hmm. and it, it kind of boiled down to, to her, uh, to the language, to the accent, because mm-hmm. she um, had the Tokyo accent, which uh, people uh, in Toshima apparently, uh, as the kind of standard language, have a little bit of a sense of distance to, while mm-hmm. uh, while a friend from Kumamoto uh, still being quite different in terms of accent, but still being kind of part of Western Japan, which... Uh, gave the locals apparently some sense of, of um, closeness. So in many cases, uh, these kind of things also play a role and may need to be considered.
0: Yeah, the, the uh, presence of dialects is something that I, I think is, is difficult to underestimate the importance of that in Japan. As you go around to different parts of Japan, it is striking how different the local dialects are. And I... I actually still remember years ago, my wife and I went on a driving trip and, you know, my wife is, is Japanese. We got lost and we were just in the neighboring prefecture from where she grew up and she got out to get directions. It was taking her the longest time. And she finally comes back and I said, wow, it took so long. She says, oh, I couldn't understand anything you said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so- it's, it's, it's this intense dialect difference just across two prefectures and, and. You know, I remember when I got the first time I got to my field site and I started talking, particularly older people have this, you know, the, the dialect from the area. And for a moment, I wonder if maybe I had just studied the wrong language in graduate school because I couldn't understand a word. I yeah. mean, nothing. Yeah. And then it, it really is interesting when you think about, you know, these people now, these younger people moving around or middle aged people moving around and they can't easily communicate with the locals if they don't understand the dialect. And I, I think that's going to become less and less of a problem because standard Japanese is more, you know, typical everywhere now. But when it comes to talking to older generations, they still often have a very, very thick dialect. Mm. Uh, Yeah. That's that's a, that's a very interesting observation. (laughs) Uh, Maybe
1: another thing Mm -hmm. may also be the sense of time uh, and, Mm. and how, how fast, People should be doing uh, special things. So just having a chat with a neighbor, uh, you know, some people uh, in Hokkaido may have a different sense of how long this should be taking as compared to people in Tokushima or other places. So I think this kind of small talk, uh, which a lot of us urban people might might think, what is this for? It's just a waste of time. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's not content related. Uh, for other people, uh, it may be very important. So I guess this kind of social chit chat uh, is is quite quite uh, has high priority in, in in some places.
0: Yeah, and along with that, uh, also just dropping in. So you know, urban people tend to want to schedule when they're going to get together, but in rural Japan, you just show up at your neighbor's door and open the door and stick your head in and say, "Hi, I'm here. Entertain me." <laughs>
1: And they do. That's what
0: happens, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And and and, you know, someone might sit and have tea and and cakes for three hours or something like that, and and they're very happy with that because for them, what's very important is is maintaining that social connectedness. And I think it's it's also very tied in with a, a kind of a network of interdependence and mutual support that exists in rural areas. That is, it's not absent in urban areas, but it's certainly not like it is in rural places. And so.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I
0: I I would imagine it's a it's a an interesting experience for, you know, a 30-something Japanese to move to a rural town and just uh, try to adjust to the flow and pace of life and the way things operate there because there's it's so different.
1: Um, actually there's yeah. a very uh insightful video uh by Kochi town I think uh, about mm-hmm. uh kind of um Newcomers and uh, the kind of encounter between newcomers and uh, and locals uh, and uh, you know communication sometimes not going so well. So mm-hmm. uh, at some points the, in the conversation, uh, one of 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 the two uh, looks like an alien uh, <laughs> because you know they, they there's really it's just they're coming from different worlds and and they yeah. will need time to kind of um, get to know each other and understand each other and. I think this video is really well um, made to to make people understand that, you know, uh, we have, we're coming from totally different worlds and people need to, to understand that. Uh, also to avoid this kind of uh, people moving in and, and moving out again quickly. So
0: Yeah, yeah. if they move there, people want them to stay because they want people to come into these areas. You know, this also, this this conversation just underscores the... The problem with this sort of ever existing myth of Japanese homogeneity, that this is a very heterogeneous society. And, and, you know, when you've got people who live not too far from each other, but they can't communicate because they have different dialects that you get all of these questions of identity and, you know, self and local, you know, ways of doing things that create a fairly complex set of social interactions. And, and this is actually one of the things much of your work really does very nicely as it captures that sense of japan in general and and rural japan in particular as a complex and heterogeneous place you know you've studied a lot of different things to get into this and you and i have both done work on entrepreneurial activities in rural areas and you raise some really good examples of how uh, the 311 disaster influenced entrepreneurs in miyagi and um, yeah I, I noticed this um in up in Iwate, just to the north that, that a lot of people came in to take advantage of of the opportunities that existed following this and so um I, i'm curious you know how did how do you think the disaster operated as sort of a framework for encouraging entrepreneurs
1: Yeah, first, I think uh, a lot of people um, started uh, by doing volunteer activities, engaging in volunteer activities and getting to know the place and making local connections, which Mm -hmm. was extremely um, important for the later entrepreneurial um, activities. So I think a lot of the um, entrepreneurs I, I ended up writing about in my book. Um, I knew as volunteers uh, because I was doing research into disaster volunteers uh, after mm-hmm. t- twenty eleven.
0: <laughs> Sorry, my dogs are going nuts because we're suddenly having a thunderstorm here. But uh, uh, but let's just keep going. So
1: I hope uh, the connection is okay. Uh, I can yeah, hear I the dog okay.
0: barking. Yes, yes.
1: <laughs> so. Can you hear me? Okay,
0: I can hear you fine.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. So, um, so I think a lot of of the people uh, who ended up working as entrepreneurs came into the, into Ishinomaki as disaster volunteers first, and that's the kind of ideal starting point to uh, to actually uh, work as an entrepreneur because you you get to know all the uh, stakeholders in the community. Um, but I think. Local areas are also really important for female entrepreneurs. Uh, recently, I've been uh, observing uh, kind of uh, this female single women who um, moved uh, into rural areas to to work as entrepreneurs and do a kind of, I guess, one woman <laughs> entrepreneur uh, mm-hmm. kind of uh, activity uh, in in the place in the places they live. So they also kind of strategically. Use the space uh, they have rented as a as a kind of uh, normal accommodation uh, as a shop uh, and and kind of also draw on social capital to uh, reduce uh, costs and reduce risk. So mm-hmm. uh, I was very much inspired by um, by female uh, <laughs> entrepreneur recently. <laughs>
0: Sorry about the dogs. It's, every time the thunder goes, the dogs go. But it'll give our it'll give our listeners something interesting going on.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're so sensitive her. to sound, right? So yes, they sorry are. For them. Yep. Yep. Um, so yeah, some uh, some female entrepreneurs have really managed to to uh, get a niche uh, and um, kind of make make the the company work um, just being by themselves, which I think is yep. quite amazing.
0: Yeah, actually, that was something that, uh, you know, when I did my own work on entrepreneurs, I had initially started with, I was interested in, I had run across a lot of women who had started small business. And I was actually curious about, well, okay, we've got kind of the image of the sort of patriarchal rural Japan. And you got these women going there, well, how does that work for them? I was really, you know, curious. And I kind of hypothesized that there were roadblocks. And I actually didn't find much in the way of that. Most of the women said, no, everybody around here has been very supportive of my interests and they found it a very easy place to develop their businesses. And that surprised me. And did you find things like that as well in your work?
1: Yeah, I think um, maybe entrepreneurial activities are kind of uh, a way of, of uh, creating alternative employment because um, in uh, official jobs, like let's say the Yakuba municipal office um, Mm -hmm. is, 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 male dominated so um most of the women working there are only part-time workers so the people who don't want to do this kind of uh job uh they i guess they're going into the entrepreneurial activities and and drawing on on a lot of social networks like um female uh kind of stakeholders who are very supportive who help them start up find a place uh and and so i also um From my own experience, uh, talking to people uh, this time, uh, it was really quite, uh, they're quite positive about the experience, and and they're quite hopeful that they might actually be able to make it work. So um, Um, it's quite, yeah, I guess it resembles uh, the the experiences you describe in your book.
0: Yeah, I think there are a lot of similarities, and quite a few women that I spoke with, one of the things they described was exactly what you just described, the the glass ceiling is very low for many of the careers that they can have, like in the city hall or something like that. But if they start their own business, they're in control of what they're doing and they, they can actually do things the way they want to. And so it makes it a very appealing thing it, as long as they can get you know business, it works very well, but it does mean a lot of work too. You know, Again, kind of back to this question of the slow pace, they don't have a slow pace, they're extremely busy, but I think women I spoke with uh, and men as well, also are really committed to and enjoy what they're doing. They seem to get a great deal out of it. Um, Something that, you know, I think your book does really well and, and is something that is very important to me uh, as, you know, someone who's worked in rural Japan for a long time is, is, as you work through the arguments in the book, one of the things that you really do well is you deconstruct this idea of a rural urban divide in Japan and we talked a little bit about this at the beginning is, you know, in a sense, one of the things that motivated this. And so I'd like you to spend a few minutes doing that. Um, you know, what, are, what do you think some of the problems or maybe the advantages or disadvantages of thinking about Japan in terms of urban and rural frames or experience in life or, dis- or, or disposing of that? You know, does the divide make sense? Or is it something that, you know, we should really be doing away with? And I, I'm really interested to know what you think about that.
1: Mm-hmm. Great question. I think we could spend years discussing that.
0: <laughs> I think you're right. Yes. And, and quite a bit of beer. <laughs> yeah.
1: So uh, I think Japan is an is extremely centralized country. Uh, just looking at uh, the way education uh, is, has been set up, it's totally focused on on, on urban areas. So. Uh, education is a, is also a huge problem for people who are moving uh, to to rural areas. So, I think these kinds of infrastructural points uh, being kind of heavily uh, centralized is is a huge um, anachronism in a way. And uh, people have been uh, discussing about changing it for some time, mm-hmm. but uh, not too much is happening. But now with COVID, of course, uh, mm-hmm. you know this may change uh, and people might have more flexibility in in combining, um, 2 let's say, two or even three places uh, of residence uh, at the same time. So some of the people I've been talking to were saying that they would like to actually um, divide their time between, let's say, Tokyo and Tokushima, Mm -hmm. also for the Mm -hmm. sake of their children and for the sake of a more global outlook and, uh, you know, all the kind of benefits that come with living in Tokyo. But mm-hmm. they also want to, of course, uh, enjoy the, the the kind of positive points of rural uh, rural areas. So I, mm-hmm. I think it's kind of trying to to bring the best of all of of both uh, lifestyles together. Uh, and quite a few of of the people I talked to were actually talking about having a two uh, two divided uh, lifestyle. I guess, uh, mm-hmm. but maybe one uh, other other point that maybe uh, difficult is really a kind of uh, black and white uh, understanding of yeah. of, of uh, rural and urban. Uh, I think it's very fluid. Uh, it's obvious from the way people live. Just arriving from a follow-up fieldwork this time, I was really amazed by uh, the availability of coffee, of, of great mm-hmm. coffee. Uh, before, it was always a big uh, kind of... Uh, problem of getting uh, good coffee like uh, not the kind of American coffee sorry about that that Japanese people (laughs) the Japanese people call American uh, but like uh, espresso or something Italian style espresso so this time it's like uh, you can find all these kinds of third wave coffee uh, kind of temporary Mm -hmm. shops and of course this may also be understood as a kind of gentrification and Mm -hmm. uh, you know lots of, of problems coming with that but I think it's just an example of, of um, urban elements uh, pervading uh, rural areas. And I think generally it's a good thing because there's more choice.
0: Right. Yeah, I, I think, you know, from my perspective, what's happened is that Japan has become an in- increasingly a cosmopolitan society as a whole. And so there are still places that are rural and urban but as you describe it, the fluidity is just tremendous. And, and um, I, I've noticed this, you know, really started, I think, taking off in the 90s. I remember when certain kinds of stores came into where I was doing my field work in Iwate and products that were not available. All of a sudden there were these new things that were available like peanut butter. Peanut butter had never been available in Japan, and, you know, like except maybe in Tokyo. And it was even hard to find. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you had peanut butter and you had um, American beers, even some unusual American beers that, you know, rather than Budweiser and Miller Um, and a variety of things coming from different parts of the world. And people are excited about this and they're buying it. And, And so you really have this kind of cosmopolitanization going on in the 90s. And what we now see some 25 years later is that the rural areas have a very cosmopolitan quality to them. They're they're not rural in that sort of traditional sense that they used to be thought of. And and many of the people that live there have traveled all over the world. That's not unusual at all. They're, they have the funds to do that. And so um, they often do. and And I think that's, to me, that's actually one of the really wonderful things about this book is that you really capture that. You capture the sense of a flow of things going back and forth that it's not a not a monolithic sort of place, but it's this kind of inventive place with new things going on that are drawing both on the cosmopolitan aspects of Japan, but also kind of some of the tradition, the social, the way people socially interact, it's all also there as well. So that was a really wonderful part of the book. Um,
1: Thank you. I think maybe uh, people are also trying to bring together uh, the local uh, features of the place, trying to work Mm -hmm. And forage uh, local ingredients, but also kind of combining it with cosmopolitan elements. So I was really uh, surprised by amazing this uh, de- uh, desserts being available, uh, like uh, in-, in rural places. I mean, like working um, there was this pastry chef who worked with uh, chamomile uh, that was mm-hmm. widely available in front of the house and using it for panna cotta. And and you've also written about the gelato shop, so I think that's very uh, right. kind of similar, like using local ingredients, working closely with the local community, but also having this kind of cosmopol- cosmopolitan touch. And I think that really makes uh, rural areas so strong, uh, in a, you know, also thinking about it in a global outlook. So.
0: Yeah, the the gelato shop that I've studied is a a great example of this because you've got gelato, which is of course very cosmopolitan international, and yet the flavors there are standard flavors like, you know, chocolate chip and this kind of thing, but there's also asparagus flavored gelato there or tomato sorbet, all made with local ingredients and and appealing to tastes of locals, things that they they like and they want to have in their, their food. And so this kind of hybridization goes on between the local and the, and the international in, in, in the low loci of these little shops and things that are going on there. Um, so, you know, Suzanne, this is a, it's a fantastic book. I, I think a lot of people need to read this book. Anyone who's interested in really in understanding rural lifestyle in general, there's a lot to get out of this and it's a very ethnographically rich and theoretically very sophisticated book. So there's, you know, wonderful things going on in this. Um, so is there anything that we've left out of our conversation here that you would like to convey to the listeners, something that uh, about your work that, that you think is important that we haven't touched on?
1: Yeah, maybe I, I would like to uh, just go back once more to the kind of um, entrepreneurial activities and, and, and mm-hmm. the kind of aims that people uh, have, um, trying to kind of scale it down uh, from a kind of mass production to... Um, a more individually kind of uh, focused production uh, and, and su- I guess sustainable sort of, of uh, activity. Um, and I think this really kind of is re- really hopeful because uh, it means that people can experiment uh, with uh, yes. various things uh, they think uh, makes sense to them personally. Uh, and of course, you know, it's very difficult to make it work uh, from a kind mm-hmm. of, production point of view but um, the fact that so much space is available as we talked before and the fact that living costs are much cheaper in rural areas uh, makes experiments uh, kind of easier than, than uh, other places like Tokyo. So I think um, attempts to, to achieve a more sustainable lifestyle and conception patterns mm-hmm. is something that um, maybe uh, should be uh, mentioned. And also, generally, I think the, the kind of change uh, from, for, for, of rural areas from uh, kind of, uh, places that uh, are associated with failure, with stagnation, mm-hmm. to, to places that, uh, that actually um, offer experimental uh, grounds for people who are kind of willing to go for, a, for an adventure, willing to, you know, to, to try their hands at innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually also um, engage with the local community. So, of course, social capital is, is everything right. in these places. And um, I think here there's also a little bit of a gender gender divide in the sense that mm-hmm. young women seem to be much better than, uh, at, at kind of uh, engaging with the local community mm-hmm. in general uh, compared to their the, uh, male counterparts. Uh, especially in the kind of small-scale activity, So Mm -hmm. I think there may be lots of of female entrepreneurs coming out uh, from from rural areas uh, in the future, Mm -hmm. especially now with COVID. Uh, And, uh, you know, these kinds of female entrepreneurs who cater to very uh, niche markets, but uh, Mm -hmm. who who are working with very high-end ingredients, uh, who need lots of time to do research and who want to really offer the best that is available uh, in their field uh, literally speaking and also in an abstract way Uh, Mm -hmm. so I think this may really be a kind of revamping of um, consumption and production patterns that Mm -hmm. we have um, seen in Japan and I think this really makes uh, rural areas a kind of worth studying further uh, for other scholars as well.
0: Yeah I agree I I, I think one of the things that's become very clear, your work is, is, you know, very strongly provides evidence of this, is that rural Japan, you know, the, the words to maybe use to think about it are not decline and backwards, but are innovative and experimental and inventive. There's a great deal of inventiveness going on, I think. And and not just, I think it's entrepreneurs, of course, are part of it, but also local municipalities are trying to find new ways that build a sustainable environment so that people can stay there, so that they want to stay there, or they can move there. Uh, and I, you just see a great deal of uh, creativity, in my view, going on in, in rural parts of Japan right now, which is, I, I think, really fascinating. And as you say, really demands more research in these areas because it, it's happening before our eyes. And that makes it, I think, a really interesting opportunity. So that brings me to my last question. What's up next? Can you tell our our listeners about what research you're currently working on? What projects maybe you have in mind?
1: Okay. Yeah, great. Um, So I've started uh, a new project last year, Uh, (laughs) but because of COVID, uh, it was difficult because uh, ironically, uh, the topic is transnational mobilities. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So, yes, uh,
0: that's, <laughs> that's the worst possible time to pick that topic, isn't it?
1: <laughs> I know. So uh, I got a grant in 2020 and, uh, uh-huh. of course, I've been busy buying books. <laughs> right, um, yes. But uh, there is a limit to what you can do with books. So uh, I have yeah. started a kind of uh, online ethnography uh, and I was quite skeptical in the beginning because, you know, uh, it's so different from being in the field and... and, yep. and uh, Meeting people and uh, s- smelling, smelling uh, all the plants and all that. Yep. But uh, yeah, I've been mostly actually um, interviewing uh, people in the IT industry, so uh, okay. people who uh, left have left Japan uh, and w- work and live in Europe mostly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've had very positive uh, experiences with uh, this kind of new, I guess, digital ethnography. Hmm. Um, I've, I've also been using Clubhouse, uh, so these kind of uh, chat rooms uh, mm-hmm. for kind of uh, overseas Japanese overseas communities kind of trying to okay. exchange their uh, ideas and experiences, which I also think is fascinating, like being limited to an acoustic environment rather than having a visual um, sense yes. and, and yeah. also visceral sense that comes with fieldwork. It's yeah. quite interesting as a feedback.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually, that's very interesting because it, it does challenge the, the sort of the way in which we think about and construct what we do as ethnographers. You know, when you don't have the smells and you don't have that, that visceral quality things, it, it's a very different way of connecting with the people. But also it's important because that's the way a lot of people are connecting these days, that the, the the context has changed for many people to these kinds of virtual contexts that don't carry that aspect of experience with them. They're, those parts of our senses are not used in those contexts, which I think also makes for some pretty interesting questions about doing ethnography from a methodological perspective. Um,
1: yeah, totally. So it's basically a continuation of my previous research, um, just okay. kind of focusing more on the transnational um, kind of uh, features of people who have left uh, Japan and um, kind of trying to to understand what what they um, appreciate about living abroad and how they actually Mm -hmm. see Japan from uh, overseas, which uh, is Mm -hmm. extremely um, insightful in terms of uh, gender, uh, uh, work-life balance, Uh, a lot of people criticizing the lack of diversity in Japan. Uh, And and that being a feature of uh, a kind of drive for them to to leave Japan. So I've been doing this uh, recently and I hope I can actually go to Europe at some point.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's, you know, an interesting thing comes up with that too. the, The extent to which the context the person overseas is living in. So over the past five years, my wife's attitude about returning to Japan became much more, I want to go back to Japan because the political climate in the U S has just been so um, antithetical to people from other countries. And, you know, it's, it's like the construction of what Japan is. And I'm sure of any country that, you know, you have expatriates looking back changes in relation to the context that you're living in. And, and, you know, that's, I think that's really a kind of an intriguing way to think about this is that, you know, how is the experience of where I am affecting, my thinking about that place from which I came. So this sounds like it's going to be a really interesting uh, study. Um, <laughs> I can't you. wait till you <laughs> can't wait till you write it up. <laughs> um, Thank right. you. I
1: can't wait to, to to read your your new novel.
0: Oh <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> I'll send you a copy. Um, yeah that that was a, that was an interesting aside. It's it's uh, uh was diving into experimental ethnography, and I'm actually going to be doing a, an interview with uh, someone uh, being the interviewee on this, on the new books network next week. So that'll be interesting, but I'll, I'll send you a copy. Um, Great. So I want to thank you very much for taking the time to join me on the Japanese studies channel on the new books network. Um, urban migrants in rural Japan is a major contribution to the study of the changing features of Japanese society, not just rural society, but the society as a whole. Um, as people go through the process of thinking about their own experiences of life and, and continually reassessing their values. I mean, this is what 3.11 did and other things, you know, the COVID is doing. And I think your your work points out very clearly that in order to understand Japan or, or any society, we have to be very attuned to the reality of ongoing change. You know, societies are moving targets They're You never... You never get the way it is. You get the way it was sort of briefly, but it's, it's always changing. And um, this is a really significant book that captures that. And I think it'll be very helpful for people interested in rural studies, as well as migration studies and um, work on the conceptualization of urban and rural worlds. So thank you again very much for joining me.
1: Thank you.